So quick lay of the land. Um, we have been going through Matthew's Gospel. We have Jesus and John the Baptist proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. There it is. But you need to repent if you want a part in it. You need to be someone who turns from your sin. You need to be someone who uh, leaves behind sin and trusts in Christ. Trusts in Yahweh. And this teaching was expounded upon in the passages that we call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, made it very, very, very clear that A, he was supporting the law of Moses, but B, that the Pharisees' interpretation of the law of Moses was completely wrong. That because the Pharisees weren't saved, that they were people who were trying to check boxes, as it were. They were like, yep, I haven't done this, yes, I've done that, and they're checking the boxes. But there wasn't within them this desire, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. They only cared about appearing to be righteous rather than actually being righteous. And so Jesus is very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount saying to them and saying to everyone, look, the Pharisees' way is not the right way. If you're following the Pharisees, you, like them, need to repent if you want a place in the kingdom. And again, I want this to be the reminder to you that this was radical kind of completely out there and offensive teaching. Jesus is saying that the religious leaders of the day were sinners in need of repentance. That those people that they trusted to tell them that they, Israel, were in the kingdom, that just by being Jews they had a part in their kingdom, that those people themselves who taught them that, that even they weren't going to have a place in the kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount was radical. And Jesus taught, we're told, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount as one with authority. That doesn't just mean that he kind of banged his fist as he taught or anything like that, but rather that he wasn't relying on what the rabbis had used. He wasn't saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says that. He's just saying, you've heard them say this, but I'm telling you that. He's just interpreting the Word of God directly. And Who is he to have that kind of authority? Well, that's what we found immediately after the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 8 and following, that he goes in, we have this entire section from chapter 8, verse 1, through to chapter 9, verse 8, where we ended last time, where Jesus shows that he has authority by behaving as one who has authority. From the healing of the leper, which required the application of uh, Leviticus 14 for the first time ever since it was written by Moses, finally we have a Jewish leper that's healed and we get to live out that chapter of Scripture. Where, whether it is the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the calming of the storm, or whether it's the casting out of the multiple demons, or whether it is the healing of the paralytic, Jesus is proving himself to be the one who has the authority to declare the things that he declared in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the structure of what we've been looking at for the last three months. So if you missed the last three months, boom, there you go. Three months of sermons in 30 seconds or so. Um, Jesus 
taught with authority, he can interpret the law because he is the one who has authority. And of course, all of this is pointing to him being the legitimate king who can offer the kingdom or can refuse entry into the kingdom. He is their king. He is their Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for. And so the response to this king should be, as already has been hinted at, that we should bow the knee, that we should, in the words of Psalm 2, we should kiss the Son and take refuge in him. We should turn from our sin, turn from the Pharisees, and turn to the one who has all authority. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 9 and verse 9. That we have this one person before the calling of all the other disciples. Here is this one who is going to be the model for us of somebody who repents and who turns. This is the model response. This is the right response to everything from chapter 5 and on. This is what we've been waiting for. And it's not just anybody. It's Matthew. It's Matthew who's writing this gospel. And he who writes to us, is going to tell us his conversion story in a single verse. So as Jesus went on from there, that initial expression is why I spent time to give you the context. He's showing us that this follows the previous section, Jesus with authority. So Jesus, the one who has authority, we've seen that, he now goes out from there and he comes across this man called Matthew. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. The tax office, literally tax booth, was a place where the tax collectors would sit and take the custom tax. Now the custom tax, and we've seen Jesus, he's just come across the lake, remember? The demoniac, he comes over to the other side, he's just come to the other side, there's the paralytic. And so he's been by the lake, and and we saw in that section that he would go across the lake into Gentile territory, that's where the demoniac was, and then he'd come back. So on, when we have the, the Sea of Galilee, we have either side. On one side, we have the, um, the Jewish side, as it were. On the other side, we have the Gentile side. And it also was the mark of a boundary for the realm of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is not the Herod of the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, not the Herod of Jesus' childhood. It was another Herod. And this Herod had a realm, and in that realm he would take taxes. So this is the equivalent of you flying into LAX or you crossing the border in Tijuana and you declaring, I, I've got this, this contraband or this thing that whatever it is that I've got, and, and then you having to pay taxes as you bring it into the realm. And um, that's essentially what this tax booth was. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we're so you know, used to these expressions, tax booth, and we, we don't really know what it meant. You know, we, he's just walking around, there's a tax booth just sitting in the middle of nowhere. It's not in the middle of nowhere, it's at the borders of, of boundaries of various areas, and it's because they had to pay tax on goods that they brought in. Now, this then brings us to the uh, heady topic of the tax collectors and taxation. Now, I'm, I'm going to be on my best behaviour. I'm going to try and resist the urge to talk about taxation. But what I will say is we've got all of this to come because Matthew, as much as anyone, talks about taxes. He's going to talk about taxes in chapter 17 where he talks about the paying of the temple tax. 
and he's going to, we have the very famous passage where um, he's asked about taxes in Matthew 22, where he gives the famous answer, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, which it seems like everybody misunderstands, because everybody thinks render unto Caesar what is Caesar's means give Caesar whatever he asks, which it absolutely does not mean, uh, because the passage is trying to catch him to say, pay your taxes, don't pay your taxes, and his answer says neither of those things. So whatever render unto Caesar what is Caesar's means, it doesn't mean pay all your taxes, whatever they ask you. That's not what it means, otherwise he's fallen into their trap. So we will come to that in due course. But suffice to say, the issue that they dealt with with taxes is in many many senses what many of us today struggle with, which is, for those of us who understand the limitations of government authority, um, and I know a good book on this if you're interested, but for those of us who understand the limitations of government authority, we see in Scripture that the role of government in Romans 13 is astonishingly limited, but they do have the right to basically levy taxes to the ends that they are delegated by God to exercise authority. The problem that we have today is that 90% of what our government does hasn't been delegated to them by God. Some of you might think it's more like 80% or 70%. Some of you might think it's more 99%. I went somewhere in the middle so as to not offend everybody too much. But but the reality is that God says that we need to have government. These are my agents to, to exercise wrath on my behalf and to punish evil so that you wouldn't go out and do it yourselves. And, and now there are bankers, there are doctors, there are they're the parents of our children. I mean, they, they, they take all sorts of roles upon themselves. So for us as Christians, the legitimacy of the government to tax us for things that the government has no authority to do is a very thorny area. And no, I'm not going to try and resolve that today. We'll get into that more in chapter 22, so hang around for a few years and we'll get there. Um, what I do want you to understand is that that tension was felt far more by this society than it is by ours. There might be some of you who've memorized the Constitution and you're very libertarian, and for you it's the burning issue of the day. For most people in Burbank it isn't. They, most, most Christians even, we just think, they think, you know, pay your taxes, whatever. But for these guys, this is a burning issue. The Roman government, as far as they're concerned as Jews, had no legitimate authority. They are Jews living in Israel. God gave them that land. They have their temple. The Romans have no right at all. And in fact, there was great debate in that society about whether you should pay the taxes or not. The zealots amongst them considered it to be a wicked thing to pay your taxes. In fact, there were many of them who taught that if you would avoid paying tax at these custom booths, that actually, you know, let me just be clear, if you were to lie to avoid paying taxes at the custom booths, that that was not a sin, but that was actually an act of righteousness. And those of you who had fake COVID cards, you'll be, yeah, you'll be on board with this kind of mentality. But, but the idea is simply that there's this whole tension going on because the Jewish people, in many senses, in, in, in advancement of, of our culture, they recognized that God had authority, that they were God's people, and that the, that the Romans just couldn't tax them however they wanted. But for many of them, like for many of us, 
it became an issue of, well, they have might, and so we'll just do as we're told. And there was a lot of tension over this issue. Now, because of that, because the paying of taxes to Rome was considered illegitimate, and there was tension over whether it should happen or not, the very last thing that any Jew should do is be a part of the collecting of those taxes. And there were two main kinds of taxes. There was income tax, broadly speaking, what we would parallel with our income tax, and there was this custom tax. And income tax, like I guess in our day to some degree, is, is kind of toler- was tolerated more. But these additional taxations were always seen less favourably. They were always seen less favourably. And I think the, tr- the same is true today. That if your tax is so much on your income, you might grumble about it, but you pay it. But when they start to throw taxes on other things here and there, and they create a new tax out of thin air, that's when you tend to get more public resistance. And so of the two types of tax, it is the custom tax that was the worst. But the Romans needed recruits to sit in those booths and collect those taxes. So if you were a Jew and you collected illegitimate Roman taxes from taxes that were just illegitimate even as a concept, if you sat in the custom booths and you collected taxes, you were the lowest of people. And you will see in Matthew's Gospel again and again and again the expression, the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors and sinners. And this good argument... To, to say that the word sinners in that context is a euphemism for prostitutes. In other words, you want to know the worst people that we've got in our society? Well, that would be the tax collectors and the prostitutes. That's how the tax collectors were viewed. Now, you need all of that by way of context. Uh, context. <laughs> context. <laughs> Slipping in there. But it, it is, these are people who were considered to be criminals. They were considered to be criminals by their own people. And the Pharisees actually taught, and this is crucial, the Pharisees taught that it was almost impossible for a tax collector to repent. Why would they say that? Because they taught if you were a tax collector, you've illegitimately taken money from people that you shouldn't have done. And therefore, to put it right, you've got to give all that money back. And then in addition, you need to give another fifth that would be your penance, as it were, for taking it in the first place. So if you sit there for years collecting taxes, collecting taxes and giving them to Rome then you as a tax collector are building up a debt that is almost impossible to pay off. And that is why the Pharisees said it's almost impossible for a tax collector to repent. And the last thing by way of this that you need to understand that will just give you a real feel for the hatred here is that the the wages of a tax Jewish tax collector were very low. The guys higher up, who oversaw all the booths, they got a bit more money. But to sit in the booth and take money, your wage was very, very low. But what they did is they took more tax than they were supposed to take to feather their own nest, as it were, to to increase their wage. And I tell you, there are many countries in the world that you'll be surprised if you travel widely. There's many countries in the world where um, there are certain... um, 
expectations that you can be pulled over by the police or by some customs official and you need to have... I have a friend who, I won't name the country, but he lives in one country and he says there's a certain amount of money he keeps in the, the glove compartment of his car so if the police ever stop him, he knows that, you know, he could just... You know, he wasn't speed, he wasn't doing anything wrong, but they stop him anyway and they're going to give him a ticket and he just hands them the money and it's the sort of the going rate. And so this isn't, this type of corruption is not unusual even today. But this is why they were hated so much. Like I say, they were considered criminals and they couldn't repent. So that's our context. And Jesus comes to Matthew, and when he comes to Matthew, Matthew is sitting in the tax office. He's not someone who used to be a tax collector. He is currently there at work. Now, these these stories are often so incredibly brief, but when he says to him, follow me, you can have two ways of looking at this. Number one, you can look at this as just being some mystical experience. That, that, that this guy has never heard Jesus in his life, he doesn't know who Jesus is, that Jesus just shows up, and then that there is this spiritual experience, and Jesus with his sort of, you know, you, he, he looks something like Ewan McGregor out of Star Wars, and he's got these piercing blue eyes, and doesn't look anything like a Jew, and he stares at him and says, follow me. Oh, I, I don't know what I can, I just couldn't do anything else but just follow. That's possibility one, and that's how a lot of people read the Bible. And I would just categorically say, I do not believe that in any way, shape, or form. I think that when Jesus comes to him, that Jesus has been traveling around, teaching in synagogues, he's been calling on people to repent, he's been urging people to leave behind Pharisaic Judaism, the teaching of Jesus that we read in the Sermon on the Mount, it's now becoming common knowledge that this is what this man teaches. And I think that Matthew knew who he was, I think the Holy Spirit had been stirring his heart, and then he was faced with that one moment that so many of us are faced with, when God had been working on us while we'd been sitting in the seat of a while we've been getting on with our sinful lives and we heard a bit about Jesus and we knew a bit about the gospel and then there is that moment, that one moment when the the spotlight comes upon us and it's like, and what about you? What are you going to do? And for most of us, that is an internal, spiritual moment that we realize, I need to respond. I, I believe this. I need to bow the knee. I need to trust in Christ. I need to leave this life behind. But for Matthew, (laughs) there was the physical incarnate Christ who stood before him and essentially said, now's the time. Follow me. That's just amazing. But at the same point, it's not what I said in the first possibility. It's something that I've perhaps been brewing, but he is confronted And he stands up, and that's crucial, and he follows him. Why is it crucial that he stands up? Because he was sitting in the booth. And he goes from sitting to standing. And it's a nice picture of him having one life and now having another life. It it is a picture of repentance. It is him saying, he he didn't say, he went and gave his 30-day notice to his boss. Here he was caught in the act of sinning. He sinned for a living. And Jesus says, you need to follow me. And he stops sitting there, and he stops sinning for a living, and he follows Jesus. I want you to see the difference between this and what happens in so many American churches. 
Jesus did not come up to him and say, okay now, all you tax collectors, bow your heads. They didn't have someone on a piano playing in a minor key. If you want it now, just commit your life to Christ. Just, just raise that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. He didn't do any of that. He didn't have any of the emotion. He didn't have any of the manipulation going on there. And, and he certainly didn't say, say this prayer and then, you know, maybe find a church to go to. Here's a list. Which happens, has happened at evangelistic rallies around this nation for generations. That there is a repentance. That him trusting in Jesus means, for him practically, it means here I am making a living doing something I know is wrong. And this person has given me an opportunity to leave that behind and to live another way. And so I'm going to show my trust in that person by no longer living this way and by living this other way instead, by following him and seeing where he'll lead me. I don't know where he's going to lead me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to pay the bills, but I'm going to trust him. That is faith. Faith is not saying a prayer. Faith is not intellectually agreeing with historical facts about Jesus. Faith is trust. Faith is bowing the knee. Faith is repenting and saying, you now have my life. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my future. I trust you with my salvation. Can you see how different this is? And so it is that Matthew in this just one simple verse models for us what repentance looks like. That we go from sitting in sin to standing up and following Jesus. And yes, we're saved by faith. And no, we're not saved by works. But as James says, show me your works. Show me your faith in your works. And we need to be clear that though he is saved by his faith, the reality of his faith is only seen when he stands up and follows. The reality of his faith is only seen when he stands up and follows. This then is a lovely illustration of repentance, but it is also the setup to what follows. Then it happened, see the connection again in the words there, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining, At the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, he is reclining. That simply is how they had food and how they fellowshiped in those days. They lay a little more horizontally than we do at our dining room tables. And he was, so what it basically means is he's enjoying a meal and he's having fellowship. Now, I think this generation, more than any before it, has lost the connection of eating together and fellowshipping together. Lots of other cultures, uh, some of you come from other countries, your home nations probably have a grasp on this more than most Americans do. But the idea is that the eating together is important as a, as a unifying of who you are. And throughout the Bible, this is the case, that you, you, know, you don't eat with people that you, that you hate, and by eating with people, there is a, a fellowship element of that. Um, and 
this is something then that we're not just seeing him, you know, he happens to be getting a bite to eat, he's popped into Taco Bell or something, you know, he's, he's just picking up food or what have you. No, no, no. There, there are theological implications here in that he is, he is eating with these people means he considers them worthy to eat with. And, you know, I have a friend who wrote an entire thesis on this, which is brilliant, um, but it's way out the scope of our sermon. So just take my word from it and, uh, and just understand that there is this, there is this uh, fellowship implication that is happening with them eating together. The house is mentioned specifically. There's no house mentioned previously, so you're like, well, what, what is, where is the house? And the implication is that, that it is Matthew's house. And the other gospel writers make that clearer uh, in case it wasn't clear enough. But I think Matthew obviously feels it is. Um, sometimes in, in Greek, the word the in context can mean his. And I think that that's probably how it should be translated here. You know, that he basically says to Matthew, follow me. And then later he's reclining at the table in his house. It's, it's Matthew's house. That's the implication. And, and behold, and, and I like this, by the way, never miss your beholds. Every word is inspired, okay? In other words... Have a look at this, guys. Did you catch this? It's, it's kind of like, uh, I think the nearest equivalent of behold in the New Testament is in modern day culture is those clickbait things. Look at this article about this, you know, and it's like, click here, you know, just someone's gathering their clicks. It's a little bit like that. It's like, click here, look at this. Could you, would you believe this? Can you believe this? And so there's something that we're supposed to look at and see that is, is surprising for us to see, is noteworthy for us to see. And what it is, is this, that there are many tax collectors and sinners, and they're coming and they're dining with Jesus and his disciples. Oh boy, this verse. There's so much to say about this verse that's been interpreted in so many different ways. It's been used to essentially support sin and heresy, and it's also been used far too strictly as well the other way. But I just want us for now to behold it. <laughs> We're going to come to the specifics in a minute and the implications of it. But basically what seems to be happening here is that Matthew has done what the woman at the well did in John 4. Come and see this man that I met. Come and see him. There's no indication here that the tax collectors have all repented. There's no indication that the prostitutes... Isn't it interesting that Matthew knew a bunch of prostitutes? Interesting. We'll leave that just as an aside. But, you know, they're all coming to his house and he's obviously saying, come and meet him. And and the message of Jesus is going to be very obvious. What did he say to Matthew? Follow me. What's he going to say to, to these guys? These ladies? Follow me. And so they're eating over food and then the Pharisees saw this. When the Pharisees saw, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Notice the repetition of that little grouping, tax collectors and sinners. The, uh, we noted last time how when the Pharisees began an investigation into a potentially messianic person, that they went to observe but couldn't ask questions. We saw that right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel with John the Baptist, where he says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
and yet they don't respond to him. Seething inside, no doubt, but they don't respond because the first stage of a messianic investigation is, uh, is one of observation. Then later they ask him, are you this, are you that? And there is this later time with John the Baptist when he is questioned and he clearly says he's not the Messiah, so investigation over. Last time we noted that Jesus is observed by the religious leaders, but he doesn't respond, but yet they're thinking stuff internally and he responds to their thoughts because they can't actually talk. He is going through the early stage of, of investigation where they're observing him. But here, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, we get interaction. Um, whether Some have debated whether this is actually interaction because he's asking the disciples, not Jesus. Um, and there's maybe, there's maybe a question mark there because of that. But we're now coming into the time when the Pharisees are going to begin to ask him questions. And certainly the questioning is beginning. Next week in verse 14, we have another question, not from the Pharisees, but another question that is brought to him. So the Pharisees are saying, why is he eating this way? And as I've said, the issue here is that he's fellowshipping with people he shouldn't fellowship with. This says something about Jesus, that he hangs out with these kinds of people. And I want us to, uh, you don't need to turn there, but later on, when he's talking about John the Baptist, He says, the son of man came eating and drinking and they said, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about Jesus. They said, look look at the company he keeps. He himself is a glutton and a drunkard. Literally in the Greek, it says a wine drinker. It's my favorite King James-ism in the whole of the King James Bible, is here the King James says he hang, that he spends time with wine-bibbers. I love the phrase wine-bibber. They call him, he said he's a wine-bibber because he's hanging out with these people. So Jesus, because he hangs out with people and eats with them, then you know, he can't just be eating and drinking in a reasonable amount. He must be gluttonous and he must be getting drunk. How would you know that? Because of his company. Tax collectors and sinners. And so this becomes a very negative thing in their mind. Why? We saw that in Matthew 6. For the Pharisees, it was all about giving the appearance of righteousness to other people. And it was less about the pursuit of righteousness itself. They, and this is crucial, you get this in the context of the flow of Matthew, that what they are doing here is illustrating the very thing that Jesus criticized them for in Matthew 6. They are demonstrating that they are concerned about what people think. They are very concerned by the outward appearance of righteousness. That is their concern. And so that is the issue that Jesus is going to deal with. Jesus' response is seen in two ways. Firstly, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. This is, in one sense, completely true. In another sense, it is an attack on the Pharisees. The the statement, of course, is true. You know, if you're perfectly healthy and you never get sick, if your body doesn't ache, and if you feel well and you never get a fever and everything's going fine, most people typically don't go and visit a doctor. They don't go. Why would you go to a doctor? I'm perfectly healthy. But when you get a pain 
when, when you, when you have some wound that doesn't heal, when you're feeling sick and run down, then you might go and see a doctor. And so the statement, of course, is completely true. It is simply, uh, it is those who are sick who go to a doctor. But the implication of this is very important. The Pharisees are the ones saying, look how righteous I am. Oh, these people, they're not righteous. Tax collectors, sinners, these people aren't righteous. I'm righteous, and because I'm righteous, and because I do the all the, the cleansing ceremonies and all the purification rites, and all these additional rules that they had outside of the law of Moses, I can't sit and eat with these people. They won't be doing the same things that I would be doing to purify myself before a meal. They wouldn't be doing the ceremonial hand washing. I couldn't eat with these kinds of people. I'm too good for that. I'm too righteous for that. And so what he's doing is he's saying, well, you guys clearly don't need me because you're already righteous. You think you're righteous? Well, why would you need me? I'm here for those who are sick. And of course there is, on another level, the implication here of the necessity for us to know how sick we are. How desperately in need we are of the mercy of God. And I think one of the greatest dangers for people who are raised in Christian homes and they go to church all the days of their life and they're familiar with the gospel, they're familiar with the Bible, they can win Bible trivia quizzes and they're well brought up and they're thoroughly nice people. The problem is they have no idea how sinful they are and how desperately they need the same saviour that has been presented to them week after week throughout their childhood. No idea at all but they can look at others doing the things that they wouldn't do because they weren't brought up that way, they were brought up better, and they can look at those other people and say, oh, well, I wouldn't do those things. Man, those people should come to church with me. The true disciples, those who have truly repented, those who have a place in the kingdom, are those who mourn. They mourn over their sinfulness. And newsflash, the more you mature in your Christian faith, you will sin less, but you will grieve over the sin that remains even more. When you don't care about your sin, friends, that is a huge red flag. Huge. We, as opposed to Pharisees, are the people who actually hunger and thirst after righteousness. I failed again. God forgive me. Help me to overcome. Lord, may I, may I walk with you in purity and light and may I, may I live in a manner that's worthy of the calling. This is my heart's desire. God, can you, can you just take me on in this journey? This is the cry of a Christian. But the Pharisees are exposing themselves. Because they think that they're righteous and who are these dirty people and I wouldn't eat with them. And they look negatively on Jesus. So he corrects them with verse 12. There's so much logic in that verse. And then he quotes them scripture. He starts with the expression, go and learn. Go and learn is a common Hebrew expression that the Pharisees themselves would use. And they would use that expression when they're beginning teaching and they say, look, 
You need to know more than you do. Go and learn. And, and it was an implication for further thought, further instruction was required. And so Jesus is teaching the teachers. Jesus, Jesus is saying, Jesus is using their own lingo back on them. He's using one of their catchphrases on them. The Pharisees, well I know so much, I'm a Pharisee, I'm trained in the law. I know all the rules, I know all the regulations. And Jesus is like, oh you're not so clever after all, you need to go and learn. So he's, he's having a, these are two subsequent digs at the Pharisees. And, and by the way, Matthew is going to present the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees on an escalating scale, which begins with these subtle digs and eventually comes out in the woes passage towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23. And it is, it is, it is brutal and bruising and glorious to behold. But he, he's kind of going to gradually move us there through Matthew's gospel. And so go and learn what this means. This is what they need to know. And the, and the passage he quotes is Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And the reason they need to learn that is because he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. And for us to understand why he quoted Hosea 6 and what Hosea 6 means, what are we going to do? We're going to turn to Hosea 6. Or more accurately, we're going to turn to Hosea 5. It's not many chapters back. If you're struggling to find Hosea, um, it's uh, Minor Prophets is the last part of the Old Testament. If you're in Isaiah, keep going. Jeremiah, keep going. Ezekiel, keep going. Daniel, keep going. And immediately after Daniel, first of the Minor Prophets, you'll find Hosea. So we're going to look at Hosea, and we are going to look at this. This is important. I want to spend a bit of time here to conclude today. Um, I had uh, Stephanie read to us today, uh, starting in Hosea 5, verse 8, for context. And I think that this context is brilliant. I'm going to try and not get distracted too much, because, of course, there's stuff going on in Israel right now, and a lot of this is relevant um, to that. But it's good for us to see these passages uh, verse 8, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, make a loud shout at Beth Aven. Behind you, Benjamin. And, and these are places in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there is a warning that is going out to Ephraim. Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to Judah in the south. Ephraim will become a desolation in the days of reproof among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is true. God is going to expose them. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. God is promising to Israel that his wrath will be poured out upon them. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to walk after man's command. Let's just, let's just understand this. I do not want to get distracted. You can always ask me questions afterwards, but... When we see God return Israel to the land, is that part of the trajectory of God's promises for restoring Israel in the land? Yes, it is. When we see Israel suffering terror, hardship, trials, you know, wrath poured out, is that part of God's trajectory for them as well? Yes, it is. And the reason that God is going to pour his wrath out on Ephraim, on Israel, 
on the princes of Judah here as well, both the kingdoms, is because they go after man's commands. They don't follow Yahweh. Most of Israel today, the, the number one faith in Israel today is atheism. No faith at all. Not even Judaism. And the wrath of God is going to be poured out on them. And in the Holocaust, one third of all living Jews were killed. We're told that at the time of the day of the Lord, that two thirds will be killed. What we're seeing in Israel today is, is nothing compared to what will come upon Israel. And let's be clear, it is God's wrath being poured out on Israel. I am a moth to Ephraim. I'm like rottenness to the house of Judah. Then Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sore. I want you to see that connection. This is context for the passage that Jesus quoted to help us understand Matthew 9. Okay? God pours out his wrath on Israel. As a result, Israel becomes this putrefying mess. And then, because of the wrath poured out, they see their terrible state, and they see their sickness, and they see their sore. If God hadn't poured his wrath out, they would still be like the Pharisees saying, look at us, we're righteous, we have Yahweh, we have the temple, we're okay, we're this, we're that. They would still be there, but God's wrath poured out on them, led them to recognize their sinful state and the need for repentance. When you see Israel being attacked, do you condemn the attacks? Yes, you do. Do you pray for peace in Jerusalem? Yes, you do. But amongst all of that, you must also pray that the wounding of Israel would lead them to salvation. And we know that the time of salvation is still future. It's not here and it's not yet. But God, would you have mercy on some? Would you take some of your chosen and make them part of your remnant? Would you take these people who've lost their children, some of the women who've been raped, people whose husbands have been beheaded, would you take some of these people and in the midst of this pain, would you, would you make them aware of their sinfulness and their need for you and would you have them cry out to you for salvation and cry out to the Messiah whom they pierced? That's a good prayer for right now, is it not? That's a good prayer. And so there is this seeing of the sore, and so Ephraim went to Assyria. What? No, no, no. You've seen your sore, you know you need help, so you go to Yahweh, right? No, no, he goes to Assyria. Or I guess she is how uh, Israel is personified. Went to Assyria, sent to King Jareb, but he is unable to hear you or cure you of your sore. This is a great, this is a great evangelistic passage, isn't it? A person is so broken that they see that they need something, that they themselves are insufficient. And so where do they go? Maybe Assyria, maybe Egypt, maybe astrology, maybe 
maybe yoga, maybe meditation, maybe you know self-help books, maybe Islam, maybe some cult who knocks on your door, maybe a hundred and one different things. But but we'll go. We, okay, I know that the solution. I've got to find the solution. Let me go and find the solution. But they are not able to hear you, heal you, or cure you of your sore. This is where it gets really good. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. This is a message to both the north and southern kingdoms, to Ephraim and to Judah. It's a message that God says, I'm going to rip you apart like a lion and I will get you to the point where there is nowhere left for you to turn. You're turning to Assyria, I'll take Assyria down. You're turning to Egypt, I'll take Egypt down. I will leave nowhere for you to turn but to turn to me. And you say, that's cruel. That's harsh. Isn't God supposed to be loving? Friends, this is love. Daniel 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar proud. Look at me. Look at this great kingdom I've made. And God stricken him with madness and he's eating grass like an ox. And Daniel had the dream of a tree, a mighty tree that was chopped down, but there was a stump that remained and a little bit of new life grew from that stump. I regularly pray for those I love who reject Christ and who are stubborn in their their pride and their selfishness. And I say, God, Chop down that tree, but don't uproot it. Chop it down that they might be humbled and that they might cry out to you. That is love, friends. That is love. And he will carry them away and there'll be none to deliver them. And then he will go away and I will return to my place. Listen, where's God's place? Does God have a place? I guess he does. I guess in the Jewish mindset, the place of God is heaven, right? So God comes from heaven and then there is a mauling. When did God come from heaven in the context of Matthew's Gospel? A virgin gave birth to the God-man, Christ Jesus. God incarnate. God came from his place And then there is going to be a destruction of Israel that follows where the temple is destroyed, the nation is destroyed, and there was no place called Israel for over 1,800 years. Now, some of you are a little bit older than I am, but none of you are 1,800 years old. That is a long time. And the church came up with all sorts of weird theories about what do we do about the promises of God to Israel, because there is no Israel. For 1800 years there was no Israel. They were mauled. And he went to, he said, I'll go away and I will return to my place. So God has to have left his place and then God has to return to his place. Isn't this good? The Jews have here a reference to God coming to them and then returning. And he's going to go away, return to his place, Until, what does the word until tell you? The word until tells you that God's departure from Israel 
is not permanent. It's going to come to an end, and it will come to an end at a particular point. And that's what the until describes. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, they have to acknowledge their sinfulness and repent and turn to him. And why are they going to do that? They're going to do it in their affliction. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. God knows that they won't seek him without affliction. So because he loves his nation, he gives them affliction that they might, in the midst of their affliction, when there's no one else to turn to, that they will cry out to him. And then he will return for them. And my friends, there will be a day long after the church is gone, when the Jews will be surrounded in a place called Bosra, the armies of the one that we call the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will surround them and they will have nowhere left to turn. And they will cry out in repentance. And when they cry out, he will return and destroy their enemies and save them. Save them physically, and save them spiritually. And as Paul says in Romans 11, and thus all Israel shall be saved. Central theme of all the Old Testament prophets. It's going to come, and this is what it will look like. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to Yahweh. He has torn us. You see, they recognize, they know. He's sovereign. He allowed this to happen, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. For the record, obviously I see the connections. There is a resurrection. There is a resurrection that happens on the third day of the nation Israel. It seems as if there's two days of national repentance and they raise on the third day. But yes, we can see the connection, can't we? Because, of course, we, with hindsight, know that the restoration and resurrection of that nation is on the basis of another one who died and was raised on the third day. He will raise us on the third day that we might live before him. So let us know, let us pursue to know Yahweh. His going forth is established as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain watering the earth. He will come and rain on our parched land and restore us. All they've got to do is repent. All they've got to do is turn to him. Jesus is referencing, guys, this passage because he has come and he's going to go away. So what should Israel do? What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loving kindness is like a morning cloud. The word loving kindness is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God. Psalm 136 is just every other line is for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to Yahweh, he is good, his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, his loving kindness endures forever. He killed the Egyptians, the firstborn, his loving kindness endures forever. He took us through the Red Sea, his loving kindness endures forever. And when I was a young Christian, I thought, this is really irritating and boring. But as I've gotten older, I've come to love Psalm 136 because it's like a catechism for us. When God brought hardship, his covenant-keeping love was never-ending. When he took us out from that affliction, his covenant-keeping love was never-ending. That God's love will never fail, that he will keep his promises. 
that the, the word loving kindness refers to God's covenant love. But here it refers to Israel. Your covenant love is pathetic. It's like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. Words have come. I've killed them by the words of my mouth. There is judgment upon them because the word of God has been spoken and the people have rejected the word of God and because they've rejected the word of God, God's wrath is going to come upon them. That's how he's he's slain them with the prophets. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Do you see that? The judgments are like light. The judgments are good. you see that in the context and the flow? Affliction is good if it leads you to repentance. Many of us have lived this in all glorious technicolor. And then we come to verse 6. For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I need you, God is saying, Keep this rule, keep that rule. You've got to keep it. He's not saying don't keep the sacrifices. If they don't keep the sacrifices, they're not obeying and therefore they're not exercising loving kindness. So he can't be saying don't bother with the sacrifices. What he's saying is don't think that you can do the, the sacrifices and check your boxes while not caring about the sinful state of your heart, not turning in repentance and not seeking after me with all your whole heart and crying out for me, for me to be your desire, for my righteousness to be your desire. This is what you have to do. You have to desire my, my righteousness and, del- and I will delight in that covenant keeping love. I'm keeping my covenant with you, but you're not keeping it with me. I need you to turn to me. Of course, you can't keep it. But I'm here for you. I'll heal you. I've mauled you, but I'll heal you. But they didn't. Like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. Notice the covenant context to loving kindness. And they only had Stephanie read further because it talks about Ephraim's harlotry because the northern kingdom of Israel throughout the book of Hosea is painted as one who is an unfaithful whore, an unfaithful prostitute. That's what Israel is. And God says, I'm going to maul you, but I'm not finished with you and I will keep my covenants and I will restore you. So back to Matthew quickly as we end. The irony of Matthew 9, when you see it in the context of Hosea 6, is this. Here's the irony. That they're saying, look at Jesus. He's hanging out with prostitutes. And they are representative of sacrifice-making, rule-keeping, unrighteous, unregenerate, needing to repent, wrath of God about to come upon you, Israel. And they are the harlots. The very thing they loathe, that's what they are. And what Jesus is doing is taking people who have been so destroyed and so crushed and so broken and they're so sick that they're so aware of their sickness and they have nowhere left to go. How many times did Matthew in his, in his 
tax collecting booth say, I need to get out of here. Where can I go? How can I get a job? What else can I do? People hate me. My family's disowned me. My community have disowned me. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then one day Jesus comes and he says, follow me. And he had nowhere left to go. This passage is not a passage that says, hey guys, go hang out in nightclubs with all those sinners and have a good time because Jesus did it. And I've heard people preach that kind of rubbish. But what it's saying is there are people who need to know that Jesus is the answer. And those people who are willing to hear that aren't the people who stand on their high horses in pride and say, I'm all right. It's the broken people of this world. And there will be people that you will come across in your lives and they will be aggressive and they will be hostile and they will reject you and they will hate you because they hate your saviour and they will hate your message and they will hate your stand for the truth and you will shake off the dust from your feet and you will walk away. But if you come across a broken person, don't you dare walk away. Don't care how messy they are. I don't care how much sin is in their life. If they're broken, you tell them this. Follow Jesus. Turn from your life of sin and follow Jesus. Because he came for people like you. Broken people whose sin is so overt you can't deny it. And he says, follow me. Trust me. Turn. And he heals the sick. And he will heal your sinfulness. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this glorious passage of Scripture. Father, it's my prayer that if there's anyone here today who is outwardly righteous but has never acknowledged their great sinfulness, they still don't mourn over their sin, they still don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, that God, you would make them aware of the facade that is their life and you would call them to repentance. And Father, for those of us who have repented, it's my prayer this day that wherever we go, whatever our job is, wherever life takes us, then in this next week, that you will put us face to face with a broken person. May we not back down. May we not mumble platitudes. May we not simply invite people to church. But may we tell them about the Jesus who is sovereign over their affliction and is calling them to turn, to repent and to follow him. Amen. Let's stay.